Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, also the land of the Lenny Lenape people, I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And this month, we welcome two guests who are leading the movements for radical truth-telling and reparations in the United States. Dr. Ron Daniels is president of the Institute of the Black World 21st Century and convener of the National African-American Reparations Commission. And Dr. Gail Christopher, recently retired from her role as Senior Advisor and Vice President at W.K. Kellogg Foundation, where she was the driving force behind the American Healing Initiative and the Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation effort, which I had the privilege of participating in. And Dr. Christopher currently serves as Executive Director of the National Collaborative for Health Equity. I've asked these two powerful leaders to talk with us today on Freedom Road about the national calls for reparations and radical truth-telling. And we would love to hear your thoughts. So tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us and keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks. And we love how we are growing. We have thousands and thousands of people who are listening to this every month downloading these conversations and sharing them, even sharing them in classrooms and seminaries. So please share with your friends. Okay, so I was touring the Apartheid Museum in Johannesburg, South Africa. You know, you wind your way through the museum, experiencing key monuments and moments that built, entrenched, and protected the apartheid regime. And then you come to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You come to the high point, it's really kind of the climax of your experience of this museum, which really takes you through the experience of being racially separated as they did in apartheid. And original documents line the walls. And one of those documents outlined the three goals of the TRC. One was to determine what happened and how. Another one was to determine um, who gets amnesty and who doesn't. And the last one was to determine how to engage in the process of reparation. And now two out of the three goals were actually accomplished and reparations was never enacted. And that said, South Africa got the idea for apartheid, right? From us, and apartheid means to live apart. They got the idea from Jim Crow America. In fact, their goal was to perfect it. And they had their truth commission, and yet we never have. So I want to throw the first question out to both of you. When did you first understand that you were Black in America and that that meant that you had a different experience of life in the U.S.? You know, I came of age, I graduated from high school in 1968. And so I grew up during the civil rights era. And I lived 
you know, on the east side of Cleveland, Ohio. So we were a segregated neighborhood and my school was all black except for one person, you know. And so we, I kind of, I didn't know anything other than the fact that I was black. You know, we had some wonderful teachers that, that celebrated our blackness, you know, and we, you know, we, we, we did the poetry of Langston Hughes and Paul Lawrence Dunbar and Gwendolyn Brooks. And so, so black was our, my identity as a child growing up. I first discovered how lethal that identity could be when I gave birth to my first child. And we lost her at the age of four months. But the experience of losing her was one of, of racial disparity and racial inequity. You know, we took her for her six-month checkup, and they diagnosed, at, I'm sorry, six-week checkup. They diagnosed a congenital heart defect. Now, had she been white, that would have been diagnosed at birth. So that's one point, right? Okay. But when they did diagnose it six weeks later, they said there's nothing they could do. And they sent us home and said, maybe when she's five years old, we can do surgery. And oh my she died within a few weeks of that visit. And I only learned, you know, maybe 20 years later that the surgery that might have saved her life had been invented decades before she was born. And the deepest cut was that it had been invented by an African-American man. What? And so I'll never know why that surgery wasn't offered to us. You know, I'll never understand that. But, but that was the experience that launched my basic career in terms of trying to help Black women have healthy babies, you know, and trying to do everything I could to make sure I, I had healthy babies after that. So, so that's my story. It really explains why your focus is on health. You know, most people really don't, when they think of race, they don't think of health, but they should, right? Because the medical profession has been so deeply Jim Crowized. It's been so deeply racialized. Wow, that's so deep. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm so sorry. I'm oh, sorry deep. for your loss. Thank you. Well, you know, it's, it's the reason I like these conversations and I, I, I do a radio show myself then. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I do my radio show, Typically, I always have to stop the guest. So if I had you and Lisa, it might not work with you. Lead right into what you do. I said, no, 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 no. At least I want to know. I want to know what your background, who your folks are, where you, where you come from. Yeah. And the thing that's important about that is you often, people you work with regularly, you find out things about them that you didn't know, whatever. Now, I don't really know Dr. Gail Christopher that well. I have great ad- ad- admiration for her. She has made an enormous contribution to changing the dialogue in America. That's how I know her. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know she was from Cleveland. I didn't know she was from East Cleveland. Because <laughs> I hail from Youngstown, Ohio. My, oh, my, 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 my story is a tale of two cities, two steel towns. Yes. Youngstown, Ohio, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Okay. So my father, uh, I'm the son of, a, of a, a coal miner and a coal miner's daughter out of West Virginia. But early on, my four years old, into Youngstown High. Mm-hmm. My father was actually uh, a shop steward at United Mine Works in the era of John L. Lewis, a legendary union leader. Mm. And so they moved. He had an accident in 
1968, he moved to Youngstown, Ohio, mm -hmm. and he was an entrepreneur. Mm. So I was not necessarily aware of blackness per se, but he or he had a store that was called the Colored Store, Daniel's Confectionery, Daniel's Grocery and Confectionery. Now, it's interesting because the neighbors next door, I can remember Dickie and Wilma. These were these were white kids. We played with them all the time across the street. And it was interesting because they were Polish and down the street. There were a few black people on our block. But it was the case that the north of, we're on Park Avenue, north was where the, the white projects were. Below was where the colored projects were. So there was kind of a sense of it, but, you yeah. know, we all played together and whatever and that kind of thing. But then, unfortunately, my mother and father were divorced when I was nine years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mother, you know, we, we went to Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. It was very, very difficult. I, I talk about living in August Wilson's Pittsburgh. Yeah. Was, we were in the Hill District. Okay. And it was, it was very brutal. It was very difficult. I mean, first of all, the separation, and then, you know, this living in what was a, a rat-infested, roach-infested tenement, six shifted street. And so it's it's two of us, and then eventually my mother has two other children, and she's struggling to make things, make ends meet, and whatever, in this neighborhood. And so the awareness of blackness really came by way of teachers. Mm-hmm. Because apparently I showed a little something going on every now and then. And so one of my teachers was named, a guy named, was, uh, his name was Mr. Moore. I don't remember what his first name was. Hmm. But I remember him sort of empathizing with what we were going through. And him saying that he may not have even said black. Hmm. But he said, he may have said colored. I don't remember what he said. But he made the point that I want you to do your best because it's not always going to be this way. But one day, if you do your best and you keep working at it, essentially he was saying black people are people who look like you are not going to suffer this way. And then there were other teachers there for white teachers who similarly began to began to say the same thing. So that became wow. obviously then you knew that's, you know, you something was going on in that regard. Yeah. And the history was a lot different. In Pittsburgh, in, in Youngstown, you know, it, it, we had neighbors who were white, so forth and so on. In the lower part of the Hill District, it was like 99% black. Yeah. In fact, it's very interesting that I eventually went to a school called Hare, uh, Hare and Hill. And uh, I, I can't even remember now, but it's, it was one of, there was a very few white kids there. Uh -huh. And one of them, later on, later on in life, <laughs> we reconnected. He was a professor at Berkeley and whatever. But he was one of the rare white. So we were mostly kids. We were seeing black people all the time. Huh. But many of our teachers were white. And Mr. Moore in particular, I will never forget him, encouraging me, saying, essentially, do your best. You have something going for you. Just It's not always going to be that way. So I guess that was kind of an awareness that there's some distinctions. And, and frankly, that is where my commitment to uh, social justice and social activism comes not so much necessarily around racial lines, but having to peer into the sky as I recounted my, my little book and say, mm -hmm. so my mother was struggling and trying to, I mean, I couldn't understand why she would take 
a, a dirt floor in the basement and brushing it up. And I mean, it, it just, I couldn't understand, but there was this aspiration to have a home, this aspiration wow. to have something. She would sweep a dirt floor. Yeah, I mean, I can just make, I mean, it's like, but she just wanted to just have something, right? Wow. So I, I just looked and appeared in the sky one day and I said, Lord, I, I mean, I said, human beings should not have to look like this. I mean, it was a kind of epiphany that I should be involved somehow in, in trying to do, do good. So, yeah, so that's, that's sort of my awareness of blackness, I guess. I appreciate that. And, and what is the name of your, your book? Because we want to be able to link to it. In the, in the, it is still on this journey, the vision and mission of Dr. Rodin. Still on this journey, the vision and mission of Dr. Rodin. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Daniels. Thank you, indeed. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if you could, uh, both of you, if you could share, you know, oh, so first of all, let me just, let me say this, that as I'm listening to your stories, I'm reminded of my own and the reality that I pretty much grew up in a segregated area, pretty segregated in Philadelphia. And it's striking to me that Ohio, Pittsburgh, and Philadelphia are both like some of the southernmost northern cities, right? So Ohio is not a city, it's a state, but it was certainly on the borderline between slave states and free states. And we had at least those who kind of are further from that line had the experience of pretty hard segregation, which is kind of deep. And I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I didn't understand the systemic stuff. I just thought this is life. You know, black folk live together, white people live together, that kind of thing. But now, what is it like for you to think back to your neighborhood in Pittsburgh, to the Hill District, sir, and, and also to your neighborhood in Ohio, I'm Dr. Dr. Christopher, and think of yourself living inside of a system like you had the schooling, you had the community, the housing that you had because of the system that was structured for you to have it. I love, for example, Dr. Christopher, how you placed your first birthing experience inside of a system. How does that feel for you as a human being? That's a powerful question. And I want to thank Dr. Daniels for bringing us into a vivid image, you know, Mm -hmm. of your experience growing up and the power of a teacher who, who believed in you essentially, do you know? Mm. And, and I would segue and say that as I look back on it now, I realized that the gift of that experience mm-hmm. was being surrounded by people who believed in me. Yes. You know, uh, I didn't hit the wall of disbelief and mm-hmm. denial of my humanity, mm-hmm. you know, until I went to a white college. Well, now, <laughs> no, because I, yes. I, I grew up and I, I was all that, you know. Isn't that something? Like, I had the my, same experience. Yes, keep going. Know, I'm sorry. When I went to an all white college, and I remember you'll laugh at this, but I got my first C, you know, as a grade, mm. and and I was devastated, you know, yeah. and and I was like, no, 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 you can't. <laughs> this doesn't happen to me. What are you talking about? Yeah. Well, I went to the professor's house on a Saturday. <laughs> and I said, you, and, and his response to me was, wait, like I should be very happy with that C because the C is average. And for me to be graded as average was a privilege. You know what oh I'm saying? Oh my gosh. Like, you should, you, what, are you kidding? You're a black wow. person. Oh, anyway. So, yes. And and when I left high school, when I left, I went off to college initially to major in theater. Because, you know, that was the era of the Sidney Poitier. Yes. 
was. So, so, you know, I was a theater major too. Oh my I gosh. Give, See, this my is why we're friends. Speaking, you know, so I thought I was going to be a, an actress, but, but they told me very quickly, no, no, no. The only part <laughs> you could possibly play is a maid. Now, I'm mature now and I defer and respect and honor all of our workers who are maids or any, you know what I'm saying? But at mm-hmm. that point in my life to tell me the only part I could play in a, mm. in that department mm. was as the maid, you mm. know, mm. just mm. infuriated me. And mm-hmm. I said, oh, you know, screw this. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> I dropped, I dropped in and became a black studies major, you know, wow. and I was <laughs> Wait. And so I studied all of African history, Pan-Africanism, but, you know, I just, that was it, right? That is I fabulous. I immersed myself in the literature and the history, you know, of my own, my own culture and, mm-hmm. and affirmed, I just, I had enough self-esteem to do that, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. not to allow this white structure to define me. Mm-hmm. And, and in my mind, that is, that is what's most important for us right now, because this mm-hmm. idea of of a of a white structure that somehow is superior is just such a lie. It's such a fallacy. Yes, and yes. every time we get close to tearing it down, the resistance and the backlash is so strong and yeah. so powerful. But we have to, you know, as you said, Dr. Daniels, we have to stay on the journey and we have to know the truth mm. of of who we are and who our ancestors are and what we've mm. accomplished. And how much we are the foundation of this country. Mm, mm, mm. Okay, so with that, I'd like to ask both of you then, what was your first interaction then, like first intersection with the concept of radical truth-telling, Dr. Christopher, and reparations, Dr. Daniels? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) These conversations, because I don't often... And maybe it's because of the, pain, of the pain of it. Sometimes you don't often think about these things. Yeah. I left out an important part of that first question. Okay. Because by the time I get to Pittsburgh, I see, I did know, had had experiences that let me know I was Black. Okay. <laughs> because from Youngstown, my father was born in Georgia. Oh. For, oh, nine or ten successive years. In the song, we did as so many black families did. Sometimes it was around the homecoming or whatever. No, they, they had these different days and you'd head south. So, yes, when you headed south, by out of Young South of you either went over by, by the coal fields and back, that was one way. But if we went by way of Cincinnati and you crossed that Mason Dixon line, mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. that was when I came to understand because from that point on, it was always about did you have your tea cakes, your lunch, and everything? Because I, you would see you, I would see my father have to expand. By the way, he would pack his 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 thirty eight of Smith and Weston up under the seat. Wow! But uh, I would see him have to go and ask, "Do you serve colored people here?" So no, I would that, and that happened over and over and over again. So I, I my memory was sort of confused in that regard, and then. One of the things that happened uh, in that regard, I'll just two things quickly I'll tell about this, mm-hmm. is, uh, and this may have been one of the times when I was living in Pittsburgh and, and went down with them to the South as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were in a grocery store in Griffin, Georgia, and some rich, rich roots there by the end. My, my cousin is uh, the late Dr. Sam Bose Cook. 
who was uh, first African American head chair of the department and all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But we went into a store and we came out of the store and there was a white boy was coming in the store and I didn't move out of the way. Mm-hmm. And my my aunt or somebody was running, she grabbed me and pushed me out of the way. Mm-hmm. She said, you have to be careful. You have to be careful. And she was telling me I was supposed to get out of the way of that white boy because anything could have happened to me because of that. And then finally, my father, was a great storyteller, also took us to a tree where one of our relatives was actually lynched. So, oh my God! So, so, I, so, I, you know, I was I became very aware of, of being black and and segregation and systemic in that sense because we would see it every year we went down south. We we'd have to go through the separation once you got past the so-called Mason-Dixon line. Life changed. Uh, significant. So again, I'm sorry I had to digress, but I wanted to add that to the story. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. So now we're going to cycle back and we're going to we're going to tackle some of those questions that I had in, in the beginning that we didn't quite get to, because I, I really do want to hear what was your first encounter with the concept of reparations? Dr. Daniels, why don't you begin? And, and then Dr. Christopher, you could pick it up. You can talk about reparations as well, but especially truth telling, because that's such a big part of your life's work. Well, I have to encounter a woman named Queen Mother Audley Moore. Hmm. And uh, it's a great, quite a blessing to have done so. Um, mm-hmm. I went through undergraduate school at Youngstown State University, and I had by that time had already gotten involved. Frankly, uh, my civil rights work began there. And when I went away to to State University of New York at Albany's Graduate School of Public Affairs, as it was called then, mm-hmm. I was. Dedicated to saying, I, you know, my grades suffered because I was, you know, activist and also, and you know, again, white professor <laughs> saying, "Gee, why don't you?" Yeah, but I said, "Okay, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to." This was in the era of black power, so when black power emerged, and by getting uh. immersed in, in this discussion of black power, which ironically was something that I studied. My my master's thesis was entitled "Black Power and Ideology on Anvil." Oh, interesting. I pride myself of having been mentored, and many instances by white professors who were very much in the Socratic method, teaching critical thinking. So uh-huh. that's why I have a whole perspective on, on the, the origin of the Civil War and all of that comes from, from professors who just gave me a whole different perspective on, on this. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting because with Black Power, it was an NAACP and so forth. And I was like, by the thing, I was, and one of my professors, his name was John Gunnell. And I will never get to sit Have you really studied this? White man? That's oh, that's so good. Wow. <laughs> and he, he joked with me. And I, and I said, well, well, I'm an NAACP, but, but have you really, you're, you're in the academy. Have you really studied what? So what I did was I then began to decide to do original source research by going to meet the people who were advocating the concept. And so doing, I ended up meeting 
Queen Mother Audley Moore. And Queen Mother Moore actually adopted me, really, as almost like as one of her sons. But Queen oh. Mother Moore was the first person who talked talk to us, talked to me about something I had never, ever heard of, never understood, had no concept of, and that was reparations. Because she constantly talked about your due, your reparations, talked about what it meant and how. So with me, it's Queen Mother Moore. So tell me, what was the time period when that happened? And also, can you explain what a queen mother is for our audience? Well, the time frame would have been, this would have been, this would have been uh, 66, 67, 68, mm-hmm. right along. Is this, 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 this right when the, first on the, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. I, uh, I finished, I, uh, I graduated, I graduated in 1960. Then I went off, I mm-hmm. graduated from Youngstown State University in 65, took a little longer. Then I went on to mm-hmm. Albany. So that would have been the, mm-hmm. end of the period. Mm-hmm. And, and at that time, I didn't even know what a queen mother was then, except that in, in the African tradition, people who with great wisdom and great knowledge will take on the name queen mother. And, and that comes from Africa, where in fact, you know, not as, and are in school to be queen mothers. And so mm-hmm. queen mother was, to me, it was, she was the queen mother to many of us. And others have now just tossed around quite a bit. But she was the queen of she wow. was honestly self-taught. Uh-huh. Uh, she was just mm-hmm. an amazing, amazing woman who just uh, came out of the Garvey movement. Also, mm-hmm. to some extent, in that period, also out of the the the, uh, the movement of the, the communist uh, the Communist Party USA. However, uh-huh. you know that same class, race class, and so yes, race over uh, class over race. She said, "No, no, no, no. I'm taking Garvey over Lenin." <laughs> Interesting. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? And then you get Derek Bell, right, who comes down and says, look, y'all, <laughs> you know, this this Marxist stuff is not going to cut it on American soil because we have race here. He didn't have race there. He We have race here. So that's interesting. So 1966 is the year that, that Kwame Touré, formerly known as Stokely Carmichael, stood on the back of that pickup truck and raised his fist and said Black Power for the first time publicly. And then in that year, you start to actually then, you're challenged to study it. That is so deep. How about, how about you, Dr. Christopher? What was your first intersection with the concept or even the experience of radical truth-telling? You know, it, this is a good question. One of my heroes throughout my growing up years was Langston Hughes. And of course, I loved Gwendolyn Brooks. And, you know, these were you know, our griots, in a sense, who are griots, who told the stories of our community. And, you know, I was just so moved by Langston Hughes having a way to really tell the story through the language of Jesse B. Semple, his character, right, who would frame the race issues, but frame them in a way that people would find some humor in them, but at the same time, tell the plain truth, right? <laughs> yes. And you know, and, and of course, I was introduced in my studies to all of the, the you know, that whole Harlem Renaissance, you know, and all of the, the Black leaders who just, who told the stories of our people. And I, having had a basic inclination toward, you know, toward theater and toward storytelling, I guess I always knew or had embraced and embodied the power of story to bring us together to heal us and to get us past the intellectualization of 
of the issues that are ultimately embodied, if that makes sense, right? And so, so I, I was trying to, in my book that just came out a couple of, about a month ago, I believe, it's called Rx or Prescription Ration, Racial Healing. I talk about my journey as a clinician, as a practitioner working with groups within communities and bringing them together and witnessing the power of story to bring folks together as well as to reveal the truth, you know? And so all of that is wrapped up in the work. And I, I say in there four decades in the making, and I should have said catching up with our ancestors, you know, because our ancestors, ah. they understood and know and knew the power of our stories being told. And, and I'll just digress and say, I am in the process now and I highly recommend it. I am revisiting authentic narratives of, of formerly enslaved people. And there's this collection of 18 of them called Slave Narratives, 18 of the most compelling, right? And there's something about listening to the actual words of the people who were formerly enslaved and have them tell their own story, right? Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. But they somehow, you know, through often, and this will come up later, but the, what seemed to be the common factor for in these narratives was a tremendous faith, you know, a tremendous, in many cases, religion, but also faith. And whether you study Harriet Tubman or, or Frederick Douglass or any of them, you're going to find this pivotal connection to this belief and this faith and this outreach through prayer, you know, for their own liberation. So I, I think, you know, my whole life as a, as a healing practitioner, I was always aware of the power of story to both open the space for healing and at the same time to be necessary for bringing people together, you know. Now, I, to fast forward in in the work that I recommend in terms of racial healing, I suggest it as a way to open people's eyes to the common humanity because underneath the centuries of denying or trying to deny the humanity of Black people is a root belief that that's okay. You know, that they actually do believe there's something less than human about African-Americans, right? Or about Africans, period. Indeed, about all people of color. And so part of our work of not only getting to reparations, but sustaining them, because, you know, Mm -hmm. there is a backlash, right? We repeat. Yes. Is to build a critical mass of support that has allowed people to let go of that antiquated fallacy. You know, now I don't use the term white supremacy because I don't want to reinforce that lie. Mm-hmm. If you listen to, to narratives of enslaved people, the word supremacy doesn't fit at all. You know, it's mm. more depravity than supremacy. You know, when you think wow. of the cruelty and the barbaric brutality to which our ancestors were subjected not for a month, not for a few years or a few decades, but for more than two centuries. I mean, the literal barbarity, and some of that still continues today, you know. So, yes. But I say all that to say, if you understand what we were subjected to, hmm. then you understand the need in white America to deny that that ever happened, because wow. that, that, it, that is antithesis it's 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 contrary to their self-identity that they could have mm. been this brutal and this barbaric you know wow. and so wow but be, as long as we remain less than you know 80 percent of the population 
our work in this country has got to be to, to deliberately build a critical mass of support for these reparations, for this transformation, because we have to sustain it for future generations. It's not enough to, to do it once. You know, it has to be sustained. So I That's say all that to say the power mm-hmm. of story is that it's, it's a direct line to the heart. It connects humanity and humanity in a democracy, you have to have a critical mass of humanity standing up for the truth. Mm-hmm. Yes, and a men and women. <laughs> yes, you know when when I hear you speak, I hear um, I hear the power of the healing circles that the TRHT commission, uh, not the commission, but the project actually began to put forward throughout the country. And I can only imagine the the testimonies of transformation that happened in the midst of those projects, in the midst of those initiatives. I know I myself, I mean, I swear by story circles. I just believe that they are the most powerful thing you could possibly have in the world. And it's one of the reasons why America's greatest export is our stories. Yeah. But I think you just said something that honestly I've never heard before. And I, I want to make sure I punch it so that everybody sees this. If I could put it in bold print, underlined, italicized you know, in red, blinking, I would do that. Because this is a new thought for me. The idea that even the language of white supremacy hides what actually happened. It does. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You know, and and right now it rolls off the tongue of of Black people. It's like we suddenly got permission to say it, right? But I want to say, no, don't reinforce that line. You know, tell the truth of what this is and was and continues to be until it's faced squarely and and no longer allowed. So would you say, okay, it is truth to say this is the lie of white supremacy. The truth is white barbarity. Well, white brutality. What would you say the truth is since we're talking about truth right here? The truth is, the truth is the behavior was, it goes, what it, what, and, and when you hear the real story, you know, mm-hmm. of what our people were, I mean, something as a nutritionist, I focus on diet, right? I have searched right. through hundreds of books to find out what was the food intake of enslaved people, right? Okay, I'm getting yeah. more from, and get more from the narratives that they tell. And they tell you what they were given to eat, what the ration was, you know, that right. it was cornbread and pork and, you know, very little every week or every month, period, right? Wow. And so, you know, you begin to understand the details of how this, this whole thing unfolded. So what was it? Well, it was a projection of a lack of humanity that was mm-hmm. internalized by the enslaver, you know. In other mm. words, the enslaver could not have treated others with that brutality unless there was something in their own consciousness that minimized their own humanity, that they could do that. You know, you just... You just oh, don't. my God. You don't Where have... Are you? Okay, you are digging deep. Can I just... You're digging deep. I think you really are kind of hitting... You're hitting something here. When you say that they are actually reflecting the lack of humanity that they actually see in themselves, isn't, couldn't that be true? Because the majority of people of European descent who, who owned enslaved people in America actually themselves were colonized by England. 
they were mostly Ulster Scots who at some point in the 1600s or 1700s came over and eventually ended up proliferating the entire South, especially Georgia, Alabama, all the way to Texas. And they became some of the most prolific slave owners and, and holders in the whole country. And they themselves come from an oppressed people. That's deep. Well, and that's why I use the term healing. Do you know what I'm saying? And I don't believe America will ever realize its true potential, you know, as a viable democracy until mm -hmm. it addresses this truth of how we mm -hmm. became who we are. And yes, reparations must occur. There has to be an accounting for this. There is no question yes. about that. And, and mm -hmm. you know, when we created the TRHT, it was to support the call for reparations. There's no question. Mm -hmm. We have been a, an ally of this from the inception. But, mm -hmm. but my own life experiences and my, I think, probably past life experiences have taught me that, that we must do the work comprehensively. And we must have a critical mass of folks, you know, otherwise we'll end up like South Africa. You know, we'll have these cathartic experiences, but we'll still have townships. Do you know what I mean? We'll mm -hmm. still have the economic inequality. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I'll stop there. But, but Well, that's exactly, actually, I have to say that was exactly where I was going is why do you think truth commissions have never happened here in the U.S., even though they have happened in South Africa and other places around the world? Because we, we are comfortable with denying the truth because this country is so opposed. And I listened to your radio show, Professor Dr. Daniels, and you talked about how, mm -hmm. you know, people are trying to wipe out black history right now, you know, uh, right. whenever the truth becomes the light, you know, whenever the truth is, is there, there is a small faction that will continue to hold on to denying that truth. But we live in an age of, of electronic media in ways that we've never experienced before in terms of social media. And they are able yeah. to take that contrived nonsense, you know, of this mm. anti-critical race theory and all of the rest of it. They're able to blow it up out of proportion, you know. But, mm -hmm. but I would say to you, we've never told the truth because the truth is almost too painful. Do you know what well, I mean? Well, thank it, you. I the, do. The, I do. We have to. That we have to be faithful. We have to. There's no way. As, as Sweet Honey in a Rock says, when they sing, wade in the water, we have to wade into the troubled waters because there's no other way to get to the other side. There's no other way to get free. Dr. Daniels, the first time I ever encountered the concept of reparations, it was in a conversation with an evangelical, um, actually not myself, but it was within an evangelical network. And they were having a conference and a black evangelical elder waved the idea of reparations off, saying reparations would allow white people to simply write a check and be done with it. It wouldn't push them to deal with their own white supremacy. He didn't even use white supremacy. He said, he said racism because it's back in the, eight, in the 80s when nobody said white supremacy, right? right. So what, are, what, what do you experience as the top you know, arguments, the top three arguments that you encounter for why reparations can't work in the U.S.? And, and how do you respond? The first thing I want to say is, okay, Nana Patricia Newton, who is now uh, beloved elder, the former, who was the the uh, the um, CEO of Black Psychiatrists in America, mm -hmm. and was a charter member of the National African American Reparations Commission. Nana Pat would get up 
And she was saying exactly what Dr. Christian was saying. Don't you dare say nothing about white supremacy. Take that out of your way. <laughs> wow. So I just want to say, hey, until now, I'm saying, wait, I heard it twice now. I'm going to start checking myself. Man, I know. All the time. Wow. Why don't you get up? Say, God, yo, this language matters. Y'all stop talking. Yes. The only thing I want to say is that as from an organizer's lens, some organizers, we, you know, particularly when you're, we have radical organizers, you know, they, they studied this one and that one and they, and then uh, I have a dear friend of mine and he and I talk, we say, look, people respond not only in terms of the head, but they respond in terms of the heart. Right. And so I can remember being at the Center for Constitutional Rights meeting work around police brutality in Scotland. And, mm. and we always, if we have people that are leaders, we want to hear the stories of those who are affected. Mm. Let them tell their stories. Mm-hmm. Because there is a way in which, as Dr. Christopher says, there is there, there is a connectivity in terms of humanity. It's just that for some people, it is, it is buried so deep beneath mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the sense that I do use it, uh, intensely, a sense of white supremacy that it, it can't break out. Uh, wow. But for some, it is. And so it, it is about creating that, that critical mass of mm-hmm. people, or at least a sufficient number of people who yeah. will identify with something and then move forward. The other thing I want to say that's important about the storytelling is that we need to know our own story. Yeah, amen. Uh, as Bob yes. said, our history, because we don't, we, we were deprived mm-hmm. of our own story. Yes. And when Dr. Mm-hmm. Christopher talks about it, somebody did a libation here today, and they were talking about our creativity. I mm-hmm. talk about anybody, any people who could take an oil drum that you well, can go away well. and turn around and make it into a musical instrument. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. she talked about faith. She one of your, one of the mm-hmm. things you talk about this issue of faith. And yeah. sometimes people talk about religion and maybe religion or not, but there is something about black people in terms of Imani, a sense of faith. Yes. Yes. That is, yes. That is powerful. So when I go to mm-hmm. Selma, I go for that reason. I am reconnecting with my ancestors. That's what my optimism I mean, I just, I get tired, but I ain't no big time. Because I yeah. can't get tired. But I connect with, but if I didn't know the story, Mm-hmm. It would be different, but mm-hmm. I, I, my eyes have been open, and I know the story. And people mm-hmm. who could be right up in the white folks' face and say, "Steal away," and they say, "Oh, gee, there," oh, and they so drunk. We're talking, and Y.T. Walker and the others who've been right up in the white folks' face, and we speak in two Steal away. We, oh, take, we speak in two languages. Dang. We're using the spirituals in their face to yes, praise God, but we also talking about liberation. Talking about liberation. And I close on this one. Because I Hmm. tell people, people talk about the, the, and I, you may not know, but I have done work on the Haitian. I mean, I've, we've done Hmm. incredible work since 1995. I've really worked hard to connect African Americans with Haitian Americans because we all owe a debt to Haiti because we know, and and, and it's good that we know two songs over two. And Jean Dac Disseline and and, and, and Patreon, and there's one more I'm blanking on. But I do declare, I always take them back to Bookman. I take them back to Bookman. 
Because I believe that had it not been for boot month, you go back and you read the prayer before mm-hmm. they launched the Haitian Revolution in, I think, 1792. Mm-hmm. They gathered in Wakayama Woods. Mm-hmm. And then later, I didn't realize until later, Toussaint and, and all of those generals were there. Mm-hmm. And they prayed. And he says something to the effect, the white man's God is, we don't understand the white man's God. We don't understand this God of exploitation and tyranny. Mm-hmm. He said, but our God is a righteous God. And he, and it basically said, our God will deliver us. And I believe it, yeah, they had, they had learned under the French. They had been inside the house and they learned military. You know, they fought in the battle of Savannah. They knew how to do military stuff for the French. Yes. But nothing accounts for the fact that they faced the French and very often they had, they had nothing but cutlasses and some of them had nothing and women included. And they would come wave after wave after wave, they'd be cut down and they would not stop because of that faith. Because of that faith. Because they were imbued with the sense that before I be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave, go home to my Lord and be free. So I, you just have to get me get a little piece of that. You understand what you're doing? That is so beautiful. <laughs> it's powerful. Yes. Oh, that's so wonderful. That's so wonderful. My mom, yeah. my mom used to sing that song to me, you know, along with Wade in the Water. Really, it's like a bedtime song. Before mm-hmm. I'd be a slave, I'd be buried on my, in my grave. And, and let me just say one other thing in that regard. Because I also, while I agree, and I often say this, uh, that if more white people knew better, they would do better. Because the miseducation of the Negro not only applies to the miseducation of the Negro, it's the miseducation of Americans, period. They don't, they don't know. They, they don't know. Now, white privilege is such that even when they know, White privilege means that if there is a reason not to know, not to behave on it. And yet, and we're finding that in some of the work we're doing now. We're finding white allies who are coming forward in this period who are standing it. And there always have been. But, yeah, but you know, and all that. But also, it means you are empowered to act. Yeah. So it doesn't, so, so if we persuaded some white folks to do stuff, and yet we didn't vote, or we didn't engage in the economic boycott, it would matter. See, we have to, we had to also, it, the narrative is important for us to believe because that critical mass is also black power. It's us. Yes. Positive sense. And then when you connect that with these white allies, then that's the critical mass that I think it's, I call it the black, I call it the sort of a, a black center rainbow that then pushes towards a, trans, a transformation. Absolutely. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast. And around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. So, Dr. Daniels, I I want to come back to that question of the arguments, right? What are the arguments that you encounter against reparations? And how do you respond? Well, it's very simple. First of all, there's just people who just reject the idea out of hand. But even of those who people who may feel that there was some injury, the first question, obviously, I had nothing to do. And mm, the yes. second question is, why should my tax dollars pay for something that happened way back in the past? Uh, right. You, you get the, those, are, those are some of the... And then there's the argument of, yes, this may have happened, but look where you are now. I mean, you've got right. years, you've got... 
you know, you've got presidents. And somebody even joked that uh, I, maybe I think it was Mr. Collins who said somebody said Obama was our reparations. We got that. So you, you you said, but you you progress. Look what you've done now. Mm-hmm. So you have to address those arguments. And, and again, it's most important for us to grasp them ourselves. And it's also a deficiency. Yeah. I mean, it it is it is uh, it is painful. The, the, the degree of ignorance, and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, the lack of knowledge mm. of true history, like in this name now, um, the people's history of, of the United States, Howard Zinn, mm-hmm. I think so. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. I mean it's, mm-hmm. it's just because the, the story is just not true. It's not even true for white folks. Mm-hmm. This country was built to be a white man's land. Not even, I mean, man. That's right. That's exactly right. With property. Yeah. Now, that was the initial, and, and the, the, the beauty of the Constitution and all that is that is the elasticity. It, it gave some space for you to, to, to stretch it and build, do something. But that, there's no question about it. So, it, the history is never taught. And so, we have to point to examples to get people to kind of understand. Mm-hmm. And there are ways, and again, storytelling becomes important. Narrative becomes important. Mm-hmm. It, it's a backup the facts. Because you didn't have to be directly involved in the in the enslavement process to benefit from. Okay, and explain that. Please I, explain that. Yeah, and and this is why when, when I Professor Dobear that that, that he, and this goes back to the old text Charles and Barry Bear's economic inter, economic interpretation of American history. First time I heard mm-hmm. they they talked about hey this is what the Civil War was really all about. I mean the American Revolution was really all about. And they talked about the fact that this triangular trade, you know, you go to Africa, you pick the other in Iraq, but it wasn't just the South. There was a whole set of, a whole industries developed off of this. So you didn't have to be in Africa snatching slaves or on the ship. You benefited from enslavement. That's why Walter Rodney's classic is so important, how you're, and Sir Eric Gary's capitalism slave, because they talk about how these institutions were built off of this, off of this train. Yeah. And if you look at someone like Trina Brown, who's a good example, then she's come forward yeah. to tell the story of how her family benefit. And, the, and when you look at it, the question becomes, when you look across generations, it means that, that some people benefited while others were held back. And so there's this little concept called generational benefits and generational deficits. And, and so if, wow. if, if the Homestead Act provided 260 acres, which it did, or whatever whatever the number was, 140 acres, it was 160 acres. Well, look at all the white farmers who got that. Now, the white folks, it's a class analysis, too, because the big white folks got together, they took a, took a whole bunch of them, 160 acres, and put them together and did all kinds of things. But we did not get that. So that means that as your forebears were able to get a, get a we could not get them. And that goes on across generations. And you could go on and on and on. But I just tell a research story because I'm in young South Carolina. And I remember the Hungarian, see, because people also think it's all down south, but that's not, it's all, it's these, 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 Everywhere. Remedies, these harms were across the board to de facto segregation. Mm-hmm. So if you were up north, even if you were in, you were confined to the bottom of the realm on the basis of race, the dirtiest struggles, the labor game. And I remember at Death Sound, Steel Town, 1956, the Hungarian Revolution broke out. 
And Youngstown has, uh, uh, like Cleveland, but Youngstown has a heavy Slavic population. So a lot of Hungarians came to Youngstown and they went into the steel mills. And when they went into the steel mills, guess what they got? They didn't swallow at the bottom. If you have one through five is the bottom, they got six, seven, and eight. They got jobs because there was a ceiling and, 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 and there was always a ceiling. And so white people benefiting from that. So you can pass that on to your, that's a cross-generational benefit that you can pass on, you know, to your folks. And now I'm getting one last, that's, one, one real yeah, quick Yeah, it's last. really helpful. One mm-hmm. quick. The commercial and industrial revolution exploded after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And America brought, there's a little book by a guy named, uh, it's, it's a post-war book, it's by his name, I think it's Harold Bank. It's called Demand for Black Labor. Oh, Wow. And this country brought into this country somewhere in the neighborhood of 13 million immigrants from Europe to be labor for the factories, the foundries, and whatever, in the North. But check this out. They could have made the decision to do what? To unleash people from big sharecroppers and agriculture. Yes. They They could have had those jobs. Now, the reality is, Capitalist people, they, they worked them. I mean, they worked the hell out of them. I mean, it was him. They were exploited. But making some wage was a hell of a lot better than making no wage in the South. And those people, therefore, could then take that wage earnings and pass that on across generations while we were being deliberately held in the South. That was a decision made by captains of industry and finance that they would bring in Europeans and and not bring us in. So there's story after story after story that we have to, first of all, tell ourselves so we know it. And then there are some white folks who do better, do, if they knew better, who would do better. I, a part of me wants to go into this question of what fuels your value then for reparations. Do you have religious or faith-rooted foundations for, for me? I do. I look at Zacchaeus who gave reparations to the town that he had built just after one lunchtime with Jesus. He had one lunch with Jesus and he gave back more than he owed. And then, you know, I see the year of Jubilee in the Torah and and the year of Jubilee is reparations. And David, David offers reparations to the Gibeonites in 2 Samuel 21, 1 through 14. And, you know, so that's what fuels my value for reparations, what, what gives me the foundation for it. Do you have a guiding sacred text or sacred understanding of this, this practice? I've come to be grounded in that to some degree, but it comes out of a basic uh, sense of my art, sense of, of, of justice and righteousness, which, which, by the way, I also think is something that, that when we're our best, we are beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's an interesting phenomenon, actually, uh, that, that there's this sort of, Du Bois talks about this duality of, at a different level of consciousness. I think that we also, we also have this dueling sense of, turning on ourselves a kind of internalized oppression, but also a sense of incredible forbearance and sense of, of willingness to forgive and and to not forget the story, but to, to forgive. It comes through over and over again. So for me, it's a sense of justice. It's it's that which is right and that which is just. And I, and I never see it from the perspective of vengeance, actually, either. 
Mm, which is interesting. Yeah, because I yeah. think that I, I just think that there's a way in which when we as black people are at our best, and I saw this in the Jesse Jackson campaign, I was definitely campaign manager for Jesse Jackson. And I watched this in my own eyes. This wow. white people gravitated to the sense of justice, sense of righteousness, a sense of mm. kind of connectivity around it. it's an, almost a spiritual connection at one level but it's, it's a sense of and so I think that is something that and you see it with King I mean he's emulated all over the world and in a different way you also see it with Malcolm in a different kind of way it's yes you do. That black people can have can be leaders but I don't want us to, I never want us to be leaders with arms and weapons and it's senses that we're better than anybody. It is our sense of justice and righteousness, you know, which I think is our cutting edge, which just propels us to, to really move. And I, and by the way, that's the other part of it. that's that's the blues of us, right? That's the blues people. We're blues people. We're jazz people. It's the difference. It's Beethoven versus the blues. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's that kind yeah. of yeah. To me, the essence that runs through all religions, right, the, the sort of central component is really love. And, and I think this, the spiritual drive for justice, for righteousness, for repair, for reparations, indeed for healing, the spiritual impetus for that can be found in all the major scriptures of the world. And, and particularly in the ministry of Jesus Christ, I mean, he, he embodied the truth of our being, which is our creative power. And what, what, what is critical to this country, to our democracy, to our liberation as all people, but particularly as Black people, is to be in our power, to know who we are, to know that we have been endowed by our creator with the inalienable right to know that we can and must create an environment that allows the full potential of all human beings to be fully expressed. Yeah. Now, if I don't care which of the world's great religions you examine, you're going to find that seed of our divinity expressed. It's not outside of us. It's inside of us. It is our mm -hmm. birthright, you know, and so mm -hmm. when we talk about truth, racial healing, and transformation, we're talking about a comprehensive approach to create the conditions in our society that allow that full expression of our full humanity. And we have to be careful in our truth-telling that we don't get stuck in the brutality and lose sight of the amazing power that our people have demonstrated and embodied. Dr. Daniels, when you described the Haitian Revolution, and indeed, it was the pivot point, even for, you know, the fear in this country of, of the white slave owners that it could happen here, right? That, that, that's when mm -hmm. everything shifted, right? Because the fear right. was that they would, they would lose this ability to, to exploit and own and, and tyrannize, you know, people of color. And so they said, we better unite, you know, we better become a unified country. And it gave birth to the, mm. the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Wow. All of it was to, to maintain this fallacy. But it's because they were disconnected from their true humanity and divinity. And so 
Mm. You know, when you talk about the white people's God, it's a misinterpretation, I believe, of that. Mm-hmm. So you ask, is there a faith or a religious or a scriptural basis in terms of yes. my work and my my mm-hmm. beliefs that this is the truth of our essence? Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. grounded in love. It is grounded in faith. It is grounded in the power, the absolute power that no mm. one can take away from us. And so, mm. you know, our ancestors knew that, you know, Frederick Douglass knew that when you thought Booker T knew it, you know, they all understood at some level who they really were and what they could create out of nothing, you know, and they could move forward. So, so there's no question that, that the work is somehow eradicating the illusions and reconnecting to the truth of our, of our mm. humanity and the divinity that's mm. aligned with that. Amen. And both of you are pushing for legislation that would move the causes of radical truth-telling and reparations forward in our nation. Dr. Christopher H. Kahn Resolution 19 and Dr. Daniels H.R. 40. I wonder if you can tell us about those pieces of legislation and what their provisions are and how do you see these policies working in concert with each other? Yeah, I'll start by acknowledging Congresswoman Barbara Lee. She's such an amazing, mm. brave, courageous, and effective leader. And, you know, uh-huh. it's her idea that America has to do truth. We have to do this. Mm-hmm. And she actually reached out to me and a few others, and we worked with her to create this resolution calling for a national Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Commission. Now, I want to be careful. We didn't say reconciliation because we didn't want to project the fallacy that there was something to come back to, you know. Yes. We wanted to to make sure that this work was about forward-looking, that it was about Mm -hmm. transforming our country, you know. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I've had some Native American folks say, you know, white people love the idea of reconciliation because it makes them feel okay, right? And, and mm-hmm. this comprehensive framework is not about just feelings. It's about actual structural change. You know, when we talk mm-hmm. about equity, we have to talk about changing the systems of inequity. And those mm-hmm. changing those systems is a political, policy, legislative effort. So the Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation, H. Conrad's 19, it's a resolution saying, come on, let's do this, right? Uh, the mm. five pillars. The first is the narrative that we've been talking about and creating an authentic, mm-hmm. honest narrative. The second mm-hmm. is the racial healing, which is really about creating that critical mass and opening those hearts so that we have the majority <laughs> that you must have in a democracy to stand up and support the work. But then we mm-hmm. talk about actually diving into the pillars that have allowed racial hierarchy to be sustained for all these centuries. And the first is through separation in its myriad forms, right? The second mm-hmm, is through mm-hmm. legal system and policies that are designed to maintain this, this false hierarchy of humanity. Mm-hmm. And then the, the last pillar, the fifth pillar, is the economic systems of exploitation. And right at the top mm-hmm. of that is reparations for us. You know, that you have, mm-hmm. to, you have to account for centuries of denial of opportunity mm-hmm. in you. And then you have mm-hmm. to sustain opportunity. So the the resolution calls for us to do this work at the federal level and support the work that's happening at the state and local levels because Mm -hmm. the federal level put the system in place. Now, granted, there were rich people and landowners and exploiters, 
But if you break it down, just the fact that it took us until this year to make lynching a federal crime, a federal hate crime, uh, it is yes. another demonstration of how the federal government supported these policies that denied the opportunity and the ultimate humanity of African-Americans and in, in many cases, other people of color. So the federal government has to be held mm -hmm. and, and be an entity that is helping to, it always has been, if there's been any real change, you know, so mm -hmm. I don't, I don't like to dominate. So I'm going to stop there. But, and we think that we are complementary effort to HCON risk, you know, HR 40, because mm -hmm. we want the, the we want the success of HR forty. Well, we want it to be sustained, not just for this generation, but for generations to come. Amen. And Dr. Daniels, HR forty. <laughs> well, part of this is because of the cooperation and collaboration of these two two really very visionary and courageous women, Congresswoman, mm -hmm. Congresswoman mm -hmm. Robert Lee, and by the way, I've had the privilege of working back. Working with when before she was a congresswoman in the days of the Honorable Ronald B. Deltons and uh, Congresswoman uh, Sheila Jackson Lee. So I I have the I've worked with her for 20, 25 years as well. And she inherited the torch for Congressman John Congress, who was smiling because she's carrying that torch. I mean, she is on a mission. And so HR 40 is simply uh, would create a commission to study. But it has been changed. We in the National African American Reparations Commission actually created a team to say we've studied enough. We now want to talk mm -hmm. about remedies. So the Let's this do it. Mm -hmm. uh, updated version is to study and develop reparations proposals for African Americans. Fabulous. And to work for we, I guess we've had our our HR forty strategy group has been reading for almost ninety weeks mm -hmm. without fail. And we pushed it to the point now where we have 216 votes total. That's to say co-sponsors and those that are yes votes. You need 218 to pass in the House of Representatives. So we could achieve that. But it, and it would be great to celebrate that. But in terms of ultimate outcome, we know that in the discard political environment, it's not going to go through the Senate. So right. we, are, we are hopeful that it will be considered uh, as an executive order by President um, Joe Biden, and we we are we are, we we have some confidence that that actually can happen. That there are people lining up to uh, make that happen because uh, it would just so it can actually be doing its work. So there's a relationship. That's wonderful because wow. because of the narrative. Again, the truth telling is is incredibly important. You cannot not tell the truth sufficiently because. The ignorance quotient is disastrous. It is not, ignorance is not bliss, it is catastrophic. The, the kind of things that people just, when you can't, when you get, when you, when you have facts in your face and you can't, that, that's scary, actually. That's scary. So we're in a situation right now where people are creating alternative facts, alternative realities, and are in a period of wanting to purge you know, because there's this, you know, they're attacking critical race theory. They're cracking this and all of that, which is like, so that truth telling is going to be important because, again, there is a segment of people who happen to be, and we'll say European-Americans, if they knew better, they would actually do better. And we need more of them, and there are more who would come over and then create this critical mass that will push it forward. 
And we have to have truth telling. We have to have reparations. We cannot have a nation without both. They both need to go forward. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your work, Dr. Christopher, Dr. Daniels. Your work really literally is I'm poised to, I think, redeem our nation. We have a possibility of redeeming democracy, actual, having actual democracy in America, perhaps for the first time ever because of the work that you are doing. Can I ask just as we close, if you could share just a minute each, what is your vision, the vision of America that you are working toward? I will say that it will be a vision in which we truly, all of us, have the capacity to see ourselves in the face of the other. And when we can do that, then we will give to one another, or to use our scriptural language, we will do unto one another as we would have done unto us. And so this transformation in our capacity to genuinely care and then to be moved from a moral place, from a place of righteousness and compassion. And you know, all of this is the the ministry, if you will, the ministry of the great faith leaders. So I envision an America that evolves, and it is evolution, to that place. And again, I may not be here to see it in this form, but I think of my children and my children's children And I think of the future. Well, that sounds like Dr. Christopher is joining Martin Luther King on the mountaintop. I mean, I get there with you. (laughs) Our people will get to the promised land. Well, let me just say a couple of things in that regard. Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee has said that reparations is the only overarching policy prescription that addresses and redresses structural institutional Uh, systemic racism in the United States. Mm -hmm. When I campaigned as an independent candidate for president of the United States in 1992, I campaigned on the concept of a new covenant for a new America. Mm -hmm. And in that new covenant, I not only talked about reparations, and I did it unapologetically, no matter where I went, white people, where I didn't, I wasn't backing up. But that new covenant must also speak to the healing, the, 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 the fullest possible repair for the indigenous, the First Nation peoples of this country. Mm-hmm. It must acknowledge and deal with the uh, mistreatment of the Chinese who came, the Asians who come, came to this country and were treated as coolies and were also deprived. Territory seized from Mexico in 1848 to, to, to build this nation. And indeed, a legacy of literally brutalizing working people in general. So we need transformation. And that's really, in some ways, the scary part. See, those who are in commanding heights, if they kind of get that reparation, they they may even yield a little bit on this. But we're talking about fundamental systemic change. We're talking about a new vision for a new America, that that more perfect union, that's the one thing they did. They, they, there was a room to perfect the imperfect, to fulfill the unfinished vision. So for me, mm. I call it a new covenant, that we have a new covenant, we create a new America, and it is a multiracial, multicultural, multireligious 
covenant that is inclusive. I'm standing there with Dr. Christopher in the mountaintop too. <laughs> I got there. All right. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. If you would like to go deeper, join us at fortunebook.us and find out more about Fortune, how race broke my family and the world, and how to repair it all. In Fortune, we look at 10 generations at my, my own family's story and ask the question of how the constructs of race broke one African-American family and how that family is emblematic of so many of us. What are the, the different policies that were passed, the structures that were made, the decisions that were made that made America what it is today, a racialized, inequitable society on the brink of losing its democracy. And in the very end of the book, in the last three chapters, we ask the question, how do we repair what race broke? And it starts with truth-telling. It moves through reparations and all so that we might find the beloved community through healing and release. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for our updates, and you can also sign up for my new Substack. The truth is, we promise we won't flood your inbox. And so we invite you to listen again next month And in the meantime, join the conversation on Freedom Road.